Welcome to the Beyond the Bubble podcast, where every week we take you inside the race for the White House in a way only McClatchy's 30 newsrooms across the country can. I am Adam Wolner, the politics editor for McClatchy DC, filling in for Alex Rorty today. We hope everyone is hanging in there amid these unprecedented and uncertain times. Joining me today is Dave Katniss. He's a national political correspondent for us in our DC bureau. Dave, welcome back. It's good to be with you, Adam. It's raining outside, but there's always sunshine inside the pod. <laughs> That's a great way to put it. Yes, yes, a very, a very gloomy DC yeah. day, uh, but but good for good for podcast listening. You know, yes. uh, for, for those in the DC area waiting for this uh, to, to come up this afternoon. Also joining us today is Michael Wilner. He is one of our ace White House reporters in the DC bureau. Michael, thanks for joining us. My pleasure. We didn't scare you away after your first appearance a couple <laughs> weeks ago, so I, I was very happy. When you responded, you know, so quickly that you'd be able to to join us again this week, right? If it were Rorty, it might be different. Yeah, yeah. If Alex was hosting, <laughs> oh, sorry, I got I got a lot going on this week, and there's just you know there's just a lot going on right now. Um, obviously, you know, between you know, the, the protests over police violence are still going on across the country. The coronavirus, you know, is, is still still looming out there. The economy is officially in a recession. But, you know, I, you know, I really want to, you know, kind of get back into to the politics of all of this today, because after all, you know, we're still in the midst of a presidential campaign here. and We're less than five months out now from the election. And I mean, really, just about any way you slice it at this point, you know, President Donald Trump's reelection bid is not in, in great shape, you know, amid racial unrest, a public health pandemic, an economy that, again, as you know, we found out this week has been in a recession since the end of February. Trump's approval rating has sunk into the low 40s. Some polls even have it below 40 at this point. Meanwhile, Joe Biden has established a lead of about eight points in the national polling average. Trump is also trailing in polling averages in most of the key battleground states as well. But of course, if the past four years and 2020 in particular have taught us anything, it's that a lot can change in the course of just a few days, let alone a few months. Remember when Joe Biden lost Iowa and New Hampshire badly and we were all writing off his campaign or when President Trump was impeached and we thought that would be driving the campaign. You know, those are all distant memories at this point. So I guess the question right now is, you know, is this moment that we are in right now, is it just, you know, kind of nothing more than a low point for, for Trump that he can eventually rebound from? Or has the race really fundamentally changed? You know, one that everyone expected to, to be, you know, kind of a razor thin, really tight race, have all of these sort of outside events really uh, structurally changed the course of things. Dave, you and Alex spoke to a lot of smart strategists from both parties this week. What did they tell you kind of about uh, this moment that we're in right now? Well, look, we can't predict the future. None of these dozen plus strategists we talked to can predict the future. But the moment we're in right now, this is a fundamentally different race than it was even a month ago, really, and certainly going back to, to, to February. You look at the national lead that Biden has been able to establish it is at about eight points, and that is basically a parallel to the margin that Barack Obama won his first election, which was an electoral college route. I mean, people forget he really, I mean, it wasn't a close rate. It was close margins in a lot of the states, but it was an electoral college route, and that's what Robert Gibbs sort of used as the comparison. Now, of course, a thousand things could change between now and election day. You know, we've got to put caveats on all this stuff. But, mm -hmm. you know, as political reporters, we are here to analyze and report on what is going on in this moment and time, not to say what's going to happen on October 30th or 20th. Tons of things can happen. And we're not saying Trump can't win. 
Of course not. But what we're saying is it looks really, really bad. And he's probably in the worst position now than he has been in his entire presidency. I mean, some people make the comparison to Charlottesville as as a low point. I heard that come up in a lot of conversations. Mm -hmm. And I think Alex did as well. I mean, his approval rating has dropped 10 points within a month. He's down to 39%. Approval, 70% of the country thinks we're on the wrong track. That's a that's a staggering number for him to face. And then just, you know, nerding out in, in the battleground states, he's behind in five of the six key core states that almost every strategist points to, them being Michigan, Wisconsin, and Pennsylvania, Florida, North Carolina, and Arizona. You get some debates about exactly how far he's behind. But even when you talk to Trump folks, they can't emphatically say he's ahead anywhere. They just say their argument is he'll come back. The election isn't today. He's getting a ton of bad news right now. It's a tough time to be an incumbent. But as he did against Hillary Clinton, he was down in all these polls then. He has time to come back. But that is their best explanation, which isn't a prime explanation, I think. Right. Yeah. And to your point, you know, obviously, you know, we, we focus on, on the top line numbers of a lot of these polls, but you look into, into the fundamentals as well. And there just aren't a lot of bright spots for the president at this point in time. Michael, you know, you're obviously fairly plugged in with the White House and folks over there. How, how are they you know, feeling about their, their standing in this race right now? I think the way that you frame it is is perfect because we we have seen so many different times the president rebound from these, you know, seemingly intractable crises, right? The Mueller investigation, which nobody remembers, the impeachment saga, which nobody remembers. And yet this time, the people who are taking the hit to the president's polling most seriously are the president himself and his team, right? And they're not acting like it's part of an ebb and flow because they're considering structural changes within the campaign, right, to leadership and so on. And that to me is a a clear indication of how seriously they're taking this and how genuinely they are worried. And Dave wrote in his most recent piece, which I highly recommend, what is undeniable, which is that Trump is on, you know, defense in virtually every state in in play, those core states. And obviously, the closer we get to the election, the harder it's going to be to turn things around. They're simply running out of time, right? The, one of the greatest differences between all of those other major, you know, existential crises that the president has faced is we're running out of time, right? We're less than five months away. And so, you know, now the president faces uh, challenges across the line, you know, with core Based demographic groups, right, with even evangelicals, the elderly, even independents, right. and he's he's taking boldly transparent efforts to shore up those bases of support, right? Moving, uh, I think it was last week to slash out-of-pocket costs for insulin, which is really important to elderly voters. Obviously, that stunt outside of St. John's Church, which backfired spectacularly during the protests with the holding of the Bible outside Lafayette Square. One thing I I think is important to note is that there are folks within the Trump orbit who think that there's an opportunity here to divide the Democrats on the question of defunding the police. Obviously, they're hammering that home. Mm -hmm. Um, But there is a bit of a sense of, you know, if you had a Teflon Don in... 2016, there's a sense of a Teflon Joe a little bit because these attacks 
on, you know, his family ties to China have fallen flat. The Tara Reid accusations have not borne out through, you know, reporting. His record on crime is not sticking. And even, you know, the attacks on his forgetfulness don't seem to actually be sticking among Democratic voters, all of which is ironic, you know, coming from the Trump campaign, given what they were able to survive in 2016. Yeah, so I think that what they're hoping for is to sustain or further erode what they view to be, you know, weak enthusiasm numbers for Biden by disincentivizing activists from supporting him. But I just don't know how effective that's going to be at this point. Part of the problem for Trump is that they, they haven't been able to, to find, you know, that, that, that one attack that's really worked against Joe Biden. And, you know, because one of the big advantages the president has had this whole campaign was his massive war chest. And he still holds a big financial advantage over Joe Biden. And they really started to unleash that barrage of ads last month. But the numbers haven't really moved. Dave, you know, what can the Trump campaign do to try and kind of turn this into more of a, you know, of a choice between Trump and Biden rather than, you know, right now it's really shaping up as a referendum to, you know, how's the president handling the economy? How is he handling coronavirus? How is he handling this racial unrest and criminal justice reform and, and all these other issues that are, you know, dominating the spotlight right now? Yeah. So they basically had a month where they unleashed the China attack on Biden nationally and in the key battleground states. The main message and images people were seeing was that basically Biden was a pawn of China. He gave them all they wanted and that helped hollow out manufacturing jobs in these states. Also with some slices about Hunter Biden using his access to get wealthy, which is another name that we thought was going to be prominent in this election cycle, Hunter Biden, Hunter Biden, which just hasn't been, hasn't stuck. So you had basically May into June where the Trump campaign tried this, didn't work. Obviously, there were intervening events that superseded everything else going on. But now we just seen this week the Trump campaign roll out a new ad with Biden basically trying to tie Biden to Antifa. And using the images of protests, the more extreme protesters around the country exhibiting some violence and then layering Biden kneeling with a mask on. And, you know, to me, it seems like quite a reach. As we well know, we covered the, the Democratic primary, all of us. You know, Biden is not seen as an extreme figure. He was seen as the most moderate safe, reassuring figure to some consternation among Democrats, right? Like a lot of Democrats wanted someone, you know, tougher and more to the left. Biden just isn't that figure. But there is some some data that the Trump allies, I will say the super PAC in particular, said Biden is not defined as you guys think he is with most voters, that most people just know him as Obama's vice president and the guy who beat Bernie. And if you're a younger voter, you don't know his record. Now, if you're an older voter, you know he's been around forever. But they believe, I mean, and a lot of this is going to be whether they can depress turnout. Can they depress younger people? Can they disincentivize younger people from coming out and voting for for Joe Biden? You know, David Pluff has said, I know on his podcast, the only way Trump can really win some of the battleground states, Michigan, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, is if he props up a third-party candidate, right? The Gary Johnson, Jill Stein. Neither of them are are running this year. You don't have a recognizable name. And recognizable, I just mean getting, you know, 2%, 3% to peel off. Yeah, They're not there. So Trump's got that problem as well, that he doesn't have help, you know, drawing, at least yet, 
sort of a, a protest vote to, to, to pull Biden's number down, to be able to win a state with 46, 47 percent. Sort of an ancillary issue that, that mm-hmm. I think the Trump campaign has to deal with. But I think they're going to be in teardown mode for the next couple of months. I mean, it will be interesting to see their summer strategy. But based on that ad that they unleashed this week, their brand new ad, they're going to go tough on law and order. And they're going to try to transform Joe Biden into a member of Antifa is, is quite a reach, but maybe their best one right now. And Michael, you know, to circle back to a point you were making earlier about how, you know, this you know, might be different from other crises President Trump has faced, like, you know, impeachment in the Mueller investigation, things like that, you know, obviously happening closer, <laughs> much closer to the election. But two, there aren't any signs that these issues of the coronavirus or, you know, the economic recession or this sort of civil unrest is going to be going away anytime soon, right? It seems like, you know, Trump is going to have to be prepared to deal with this through the summer, if not into the fall, right? The biggest question in my mind is not only what the second wave of the coronavirus is going to look like, uh, but what it's going to do to turn out. I think that the, the biggest unknown at the moment is how it's going to affect uh, turnout among the elderly, which, of course, is absolutely critical to a Trump victory. So to the extent that their plan is to suppress turnout among young voters, I think that they're going to have to succeed beyond their wildest expectations, really, because of a likely suppressed turnout from elderly voters because of a second wave. Another thing that I think is concerning for the president is, you know, he's campaigning on this narrative to be, you know, the great American comeback, that he's leading this great comeback because Americans, as we all know, love a good comeback story. And there there are really two dangers to this. First and foremost, it's not jobs numbers, right, that the president needs. Americans don't vote on jobs numbers. They vote on actual jobs, right? Are they suffering? Are their loved ones suffering? You know, that animal spirit of feeling that we're in good or hard times. And the fact of the matter is we're, we're still in this massive hole with consumer confidence in the tank, looking down the barrel of a second wave of this crisis. And, and the second danger is being so wedded to this narrative of a great American comeback that if we do hit a second wave in the fall, and it's looking increasingly likely that we will, then the president is really left with two choices, right? Either one, shift the message in the 11th hour, or two, ignore reality at the risk of losing thousands of American lives. And what do we think is the most likely path he will choose? That's a dangerous place for him to be, you know, to be putting himself in such a precarious position. That's a great point that gets to, you know, one of the the main problems the Trump campaign has had in terms of finding a right message for this moment right now is because they had planned on running almost solely on a strong economy, right? At the beginning of the year, it looks like that was going to be one of the best cards he had to play. Of course, things look a lot different now. Maybe, you know, one potential bright spot there for Trump, you know, if you do, you know, look into the weeds on some of these polls, even where Trump is losing, he still does, you know, beat Joe Biden in a lot of these polls on who's better to handle the economy, right? You know, they prefer Biden on uh, race relations, they prefer him on healthcare coronavirus, but he still is beating out 
Biden in a lot of cases on the economy. And even though, you know, that revelation I mentioned earlier that the U.S. economy is in a recession, you know, there was some relatively positive job news recently, you know, the unemployment rate going from 19.7% to 16.3%. Again, not great, but at least a, a, a positive trend for once. Dave, is an improving, though maybe not necessarily strong economy, you know, could that be enough for Trump to kind of bet his campaign on here as we go into the fall? I think it's his best bet. I mean, as you said, I think those numbers are important. If he can make it an economic election, which a lot of presidential elections come down to, I think this could be the outlier, that this is not an economic election, that this is just Mm -hmm. solely about a Trump temperament election and people are exhausted and they say, this is enough. But if Trump could get the unemployment rate down to 12%, 11%, 10% going in October, still terrible numbers, but he can then stand in the Rose Garden and argue, We are on the comeback. Why would you change drivers? I built the greatest economy once. We're on the path again. If it wasn't for coronavirus, you know, we would be in even better shape. And this time next year, it's going to be roaring back like you wouldn't believe. Here are some economic proposals I've got for January 2021. That, I think, is the ideal scenario. And I will say, Democrats know this, and the Democratic strategist I spoke to they outlined, you know, a worst case scenario of a fall where you've got unemployment dropping at a greater rate than expected, the prospects of a coronavirus vaccine earlier than expected, and, you know, Trump signing on to some bipartisan criminal justice reform where he can, you know, claim he's helping solve the racial unrest in the country. You know, that's, of course, a lot lot to count on. That's a sort of three Hail Mary passes. But, you know, Democrats are so shell-shocked from 2016 that they say, like, look, this isn't out of the realm. Right now we feel really, really good. Biden would clean up. He'd win. He might win by double digits. It might be a blowout. But by October, a lot could change. And they also have to be careful about not rooting against these things, right? And economic recovery is something we all want. Uh, a coronavirus vaccine is something we all want. So they got to be careful about if we do mm-hmm. get good news to sort of be the clouds and rain on it. Because, man, I want a coronavirus vaccine. It has nothing to do with my politics. Like, I want, you know, I want people to be employed, uh, you know. Mm-hmm. Right. And so I think there's that, that's the risk. Right. The best hope, however, is that the president can provide not good news, but, but hopeful news, as in to say that, you know, we are at, you know, as you say, 10, 11, 12% unemployment. The Fed said we'd reach the end of the year, you know, around that. And as you see, stocks have been falling on that news that this is going to be a protracted recovery. That's not good news. It's, it's relative to, you know, 19%. Right. But an extremely poor number to go into an election with. And in terms of a vaccine, and we've been doing a lot of work on this, the best hope that they have is that the president can go out to the Rose Garden and say, we've identified a candidate that's, you know, gone through phase three trials. And, you know, but there will be no widely accessible or even limited access to a vaccine by the election. And so he will have to be making a promise. Yeah. It's going to be about projecting into 2021. These things are on the horizon. 
and we're going to deliver them next year. It becomes not a matter of deliverables is the point. He will not be able to say right. that I've delivered this. He'll be campaigning on a, on several promises. Sure. And at this point, how how much credibility does he have to make those promises? And he has to disqualify Biden. And I think we keep going back to that. But I think that's mm-hmm. it's going to be a really negative, nasty campaign. I mean, the other prospect that Democrats fear is that if if there are debates, if there's even one debate, you know, remember in 2016, people thought Trump lost the debates to Hillary Clinton. The media polls after that were, oh, you know, Hillary won it two thirds. Well, you know, not so, you know, in, in a lot of the voters out there. And there is more of a concern that Biden could have a flub in one of these debates because we've seen him in television interviews sure. and, you know, his appearances before where he makes flubs, he makes mistakes, he loses his train of thought. You know, he he says something controversial and that Trump could goad him, that you could have a scenario where Biden is sitting on a nice lead comparable to where he's at now and then makes that mistake where 70 million people are watching and they go, ooh, you know. Yeah, but what what evidence do we have that Biden's flubs have been held against him? I mean, we we asked this question, you know, repeatedly of Trump. Right. you know, throughout 2016, and the answer was obviously that, you know, it wasn't held against him. And I think that we're facing an interesting, I mean, I'm not, I'm not drawing a direct comparison because they're obviously different magnitudes, and, but it, it doesn't seem as if Democrats are going to necessarily take pause. Michael, I think you might be onto a story idea. I mean, that Biden is like the Trump of 2020. Yeah, right. What'd you call him before? Teflon, Teflon Joe, right? Yeah, yeah, I mean, like, right? Because Trump got away with everything in 2016 and people couldn't believe it. In a normal campaign, if Biden was against Marco Rubio or Jeb Bush, I mean, would it matter a lot more yeah. that he has having all these problems and says all these things that, you know. They get overshadowed so easily. Yeah. And then Trump right. gets on Twitter every night and people are like, what? <laughs> like, in comparison. So, yeah, that's, that's interesting food for thought. Before, you know, we completely bring the listeners into, you know, a, a pitch meeting here, I want to make sure <laughs> we, we hit on our, our final topic here. You know, it's really been striking to see how, you know, members of both parties are really changing the way they're talking about and approaching one sensitive issues like race relations, police violence, and criminal justice reform as the tide of public opinion has really quickly shifted on these topics in the wake of George Floyd's death. You know, Trump and his conservative allies, however, you know, we're talking about what, you know, his message might look like. You know, I think one clear indicator from the past few weeks is that, you know, they're leaning, you know, even harder into this message of law and order. You know, I think Trump has tweeted the phrase law and order every day now for the past few days. In previous elections, that's the kind of message that has helped uh, Republicans in particular shore up support in suburban areas, you know, among voters who are, you know, maybe they see protests or riots or crime in, in cities and, you know, they, you know, that that message has, has sort of appealed to them. But but obviously, you know, dynamics are much different in 2020. So, you know, Dave, you know, will a law and order campaign, if, you know, if the Trump campaign stays on that track, is that going to have much appeal outside of his core base? Man, it seems like a base driving message to me. I mean, it's so mm-hmm. Nixonian. But, but the country is in such a different place than the 70s where, you know, it worked for Nixon, right? He scared a lot of white people and he wasn't an incumbent president. So I think that's Trump's sort of gut instinct is to, to bet on his base. But, you know, as Democrats, we spoke to this week, said there's nothing in his message that is trying to talk to that sort of independent suburban woman who took a chance on him and maybe like some of the economic policies, but hates the tone. I mean, the Black Lives Matter poll 
is so striking. Like Black Lives Matter is more popular than all these other interest groups now. And it, mm -hmm. and it happened faster. It happened in a month's time. And so Trump screaming law and order could have been a winning message a decade ago, but it doesn't look like that anymore, just given where racial awareness is going in this country. So the problem is Trump campaign can construct any type of message and Trump will change it or blow it up on a dime. And I think like his advisors probably don't want him on Twitter just saying that every day, but he's going to go with his gut because that's how he won in 2016. The one thing I will say on the criminal justice piece is that in interviews this week, they do seem intent on going hard at Biden for the 1994 crime bill, something they believe a lot of younger voters don't know a ton about that they will argue led to mass incarceration. And many Democrats agree mm -hmm. with them on that. They think that's a winner. Now, the, the quote in our piece that calls Biden a bigot and a racist, very incendiary, I think goes too far and, and doesn't pass the smell test. But they're going to try to make that argument that, look, we're the criminal justice reformers. We put together bipartisan legislation with Congress that seeks to reduce the racial disparities between crack and cocaine, which targeted African-Americans, put them in prison longer, and that Biden was the one who set us back. Biden's the one who led us to this moment. That will be an interesting case, and will be interesting to see how Biden responds. But, you know, criminal justice, I think, will be an issue now throughout November. Yeah, Michael, you know, I know you've been doing some reporting on this. You know, the White House, you know, congressional Republicans are working yeah. right now to find some sort of criminal justice reform package they can put together this summer. What are they kind of hoping to get out of that? And, you know, where, where do things stand, at least as of, of uh, you know, Thursday morning here? <laughs> There's disagreement within the White House over how to proceed, not only in terms of process, you know, whether or not he should go through the, you know, an executive order, given nationally televised speech. There are folks who are against that, given the success of uh, past speeches he's given on race or touching on race, you know, does he actually want to try in an election year to at least give off the appearance that he wants some sort of bipartisan legislation? So they're still debating that. They're also debating, you know, what can we do at the federal level? They are of the belief, from what I've been told, that, you know, concerns over chokehold bans, for example, should be dealt with at at the local and state level. They're still going through all of that, and my understanding is they are speaking with interest groups to try and get a sense of, you know, where they can get the widest amount of support. But in terms of messaging, the, the bottom line is this. You have White House officials from several cabinet members and the press secretary and the president himself being asked repeatedly, do you believe that there's a systemic problem of racism, right? And their answer is, you know, we see injustices, but there is no systemic racism in the country. But if you don't believe that there's systemic racism, then you do not believe in reform, right? If you support national reform, right, from the federal level, then you're saying that there is a widespread systemic problem. So they have to decide which, which way they're going to they're go on that. And obviously, as, the, as Dave rightly pointed out, they're doubling down on the law and order message, which has worked before. I also agree, you know, that's just not clear that it's going to appeal to the extent that it has in prior years to a Republican base, given 
-hmm. the popularity of the of the sentiment of Black Lives Matter right now that we've seen just surge. But, you know, don't forget that the president stood on stage at the Republican convention in you know, 2016 and talked about bloodletting and violence and the need for law and order. It was a speech that was savaged, right? As dark and authoritarian at the time, but it did not dissuade his supporters by any means. And that was not in the context of these protests and, and riots and, and so forth. So it, it may be a, a successful strategy. All right, well, let's wrap it up now and get to everyone's favorite part of the program here where uh, Michael and Dave reach into their reporter's notebooks and pull out a brilliant factoid that our listeners don't know about uh, the campaign, the White House, the wide world of politics, you have it. Dave, do you want to kick us off? Sure. So Priorities USA, the main Democratic super PAC supporting Biden, did a big briefing with reporters yesterday going through all their data. It's actually very helpful in that the Biden campaign doesn't really do this. And one of the interesting things that, that came out of it for me is that they went through their six core battleground states. We keep talking about them, Pennsylvania, Michigan, Wisconsin, Florida, Arizona, North Carolina. They believe at this point in time that Arizona and North Carolina are bluer than Florida and that Biden has a better shot at picking up those states at this point in time than Florida. They had Biden winning five of those six states with Florida being too close to call. Now, public polling has showed Biden ahead in Florida. They are less bullish on Florida, which is why they're investing more in Arizona and North Carolina. So it's just interesting from sort of a political nerd's outlook like we all are. You know, Florida is the quintessential battleground state. It has been for years, but Democrats are less confident about the Sunshine State than they are uh, sort of the new emerging battlegrounds of North Carolina and Arizona. Yeah. Yeah. It's been fascinating to see kind of how that, that shuffling of the battleground map has really been shaking out this year. And I have a feeling it will continue to change through November. Michael, what do you have for us? Yeah. One thing that struck me is that you know, conventionally, in the lead-up to an election, you see you know, top White House officials move to the campaign for the, you know, for the re-elect. You're actually seeing a little bit of the opposite right now. Several officials, obviously Kaylee McEnany being the most prominent, have joined the West mm. Wing. So it's a little bit, you know, in, in the reverse, which, you know, I'm not reading too much into it. I just think it's an interesting little tidbit that might tell us something about how the president thinks that the White House is his most, obviously, his most powerful platform moving forward. All right. Good stuff today, guys. We'll have to do it again. Thanks so much for coming on. Thank you. Thank you, sir. And a thank you to our producer, Jeremy Sheeler, as well as to our executive producer, David Coburn. And of course, thank you, the listeners. Check us out on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or whatever podcast app you use. And if you like what you're hearing, please leave us a rating or a review. We'll talk to you next week.